You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Israel's Prime Minister calls for mass immigration of European Jews to Israel, we ask how secure Jews can feel in Europe after the murders in Paris and Copenhagen. But we begin in Ukraine, where a ceasefire that came into force at the weekend is close to collapse. Ukraine's government and separatist rebels have missed a deadline to withdraw heavy weapons from the front line. And although most areas are quiet, fighting is still reported inside the town of Dabalseva, a key transport hub in eastern Ukraine. I'm joined now from Slavyansk in eastern Ukraine by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Dan, can you describe the situation around Debaltseva right now? Well, Debaltseva, the town, um, is closed to all access from outside at the moment, uh, all non-military access. It's a key uh, road and rail hub which uh, lies between the two main rebel-held cities of Donetsk and Lugansk. Because of that, because of its position and, it, and, it, and its major transport infrastructure, it would be uh, uh, an important prize for the rebels who currently hold Donetsk and Lugansk. It would allow them to link up those towns, and obviously uh, it would ease their supply efforts. At the moment, the town is closed to, uh, to access from outside, as I say, and reports from inside, inside the town um, are conflicting. Um, what does appear to be happening, uh, both sides say that uh, fighting is continuing, heavy fighting in the center of town. Uh, Ukrainian troops are still in there, still in the center of town. Um, uh, rebel troops have pushed their way in from the north and the east. And um, we're not sure of the state of battle at the moment. Some senior rebel sources are saying that uh, the, the, the separatists already effectively have control of the town. Others are saying that there is still a, a, a heavy battle going on around key areas of the town. Rebels have insisted for a few days, though, that the area is effectively surrounded, that thousands of Ukrainian troops are trapped inside uh, a ring of rebel troops, and they have demanded since the seasons before the, the ceasefire agreement overnight uh, that was supposed to come into effect overnight Saturday, Sunday, that those Ukrainian troops lay down their arms and leave. Kiev is refusing to do this. And it denies that Debaltseva is lost. It also denies that its uh, troops are unable to uh, leave the area. So it's a messy picture, but what we can certainly tell in terms of momentum is that Ukrainian troops inside uh, Debaltseva are under increasing pressure, and the rebels are making increasing gains, and their claims uh, as to their hold over Debaltseva are getting stronger and stronger and more and more strident as the hours go on today. Now, as you mentioned, Dan, uh, the Ukrainian troops, thousands of them, have been inside Debaltseva and surrounded by rebel forces for some days. And indeed, prior to the ceasefire agreed in Minsk last week, at that time, before the ceasefire was agreed, what hope or what prospect did uh, the Ukrainian forces have of retaining control over this town? Or was it always going to be the case that they were going to have to leave it? The, uh, the position for the Ukrainian troops there in Debaltseva has looked increasingly bleak for a number of weeks. More and more forces have been concentrated in the area with, according to Kiev and, and uh, Ukraine's Western allies, major military help from Russia. Uh, the United States and now the European Union since yesterday openly saying that uh, Russian troops are involved in the area. 
So the position has been bleak for the Ukrainians for a long time around there in Debaltseva. But because it's a key transport hub, because um, they, they, they were determined after the, the loss of Donetsk Airport, another crucial strategic point that was lost to Ukraine's forces, to Kiev's forces, uh, a few weeks ago, the government in Kiev was determined to hold on to it as best they could, even though this uh, this ring of, of of rebel armor was closing around the area. And Kiev did insist that it still had a way out. It insisted that it could still rearm its troops. But at the moment, it's looking horribly like a situation that developed at another strategic point last summer called Ilovaisk, which ended up with, uh, again, the alleged involvement of... of, of uh, of Russian troops in, in large numbers and with uh, with high-tech weapons, uh, effectively routing Ukrainian forces in and around Ilovaisk to the loss of with the loss of hundreds of Ukrainian troops. We still don't know the, the full extent of that. But as well as being military militarily damaging to Kiev back in the summer, that was also very damaging politically to Kiev's leaders. And this if uh, this this situation now around the Baltica, if it was lost. If it was lost with uh, with major bloodshed, then it would also be extremely damaging for President po- uh, Petro Poroshenko and his government. Now, this this deal that was uh, hammered out in Minsk over uh, f- 15 hours through the night negotiations, given the strategic importance of this transport hub, uh, why was this not dealt with as part of those negotiations? Well, this is is one of the the key questions. I mean, again, if we think back to the Minsk agreement, the first Minsk agreement back in uh, last September, there was a big question remaining over Donetsk Airport, and and it was subsequently fought over for several months um, with great with great loss of life on both sides until the rebels took it earlier uh, earlier this year. Um, and both sides at that point claimed that the original Minsk agreement gave Donetsk Airport to them. It seems to be the same situation now around Debaltseva. It is a crucial point, um, and both sides are determined to keep it uh, for strategic reasons. But uh, both sides also disagree over what the Minsk Agreement, the new Minsk Agreement, says as to who should control this area. Um, and there's absolutely no clarity on that at the moment. The rebels insist it's theirs and that they will continue to fight, and they have a right to fight until Ukrainian forces have been driven away. The uh, elsewhere in eastern Ukraine, Dan, is the ceasefire holding. The ceasefire is uh, has certainly seen as as we saw again last uh, last September when the first ceasefire came into effect. We have seen a, a striking uh, reduction in the intensity of, uh, of of fighting and the scale of fighting across the front line. But there are other areas that have experienced shelling since that ceasefire came into effect overnight Saturday to Sunday, um, but in isolated areas. The other main point of concern and the other, the, the, the other area of, the, uh, of strongest clashes at the moment is down near the strategic port of Mariupol, which is still controlled by the government. Um, and they are determined to hold on to it. In the days leading up to Minsk, they pushed the rebels away uh, dozens of kilometers from Mariupol back towards the Russian border. But fighting has been taking place around that area, roughly 20 kilometers or so from Mariupol, around a town called Shirokine. It hasn't come under as much attention as Debaltseva, but um, there is still heavy fighting going down there, going on down there, involving tanks, involving artillery, um, and it remains to be seen how that situation will be resolved as well. The uh, 
the current rapidly changing situation in Debaltsima. Uh, Patrick Smith, looking at this from the outside, uh, it was clear in the run-up to the Minsk talks last week, it was made clear that the Western powers are not prepared to intervene militarily in support of the Ukrainian government. So does this leave uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, allies in eastern Ukraine with most of the Trump cards? Most of the Trump cards, indeed, and the, 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 the shape of the Minsk II agreement is very much recognition of, of the territorial gains made by uh, the, the rebels and uh, backed by, by Russia. It's an attempt to freeze those gains as, at, at the present position and an attempt also to, to um, uh, find some kind of constitutional mechanism which would pr- provide for a, a longer lasting solution. But it, it's one in which very substantial autonomy is likely to have to be granted to the um, eastern Ukraine. Uh, elections are supposed to happen. And, and Kiev doesn't get control of its own border until all of those are are um, substantially in place. There's also supposed to be a sort of cordon sanitaire uh, with withdrawal of heavy weapons from, from the disputed um, uh, front lines. And, and of course, that's not happening at all. No, neither side has withdrawn uh, at all. But it is very much uh, a, a recognition of Putin's uh, and the rebels' gains. So has Putin emerged from this entire process stronger? Uh, in in some respects, yes. Uh, in other respects, no. Uh, the 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 reality is that Putin is is uh, um, economically under some considerable pressure back back in in Moscow uh, because of the the fall in the value of the ruble, because of the fall in the value of oil prices, which, which he des- desperately needs. And some economists have talked about a perfect storm in terms of of the build up in in the. In the um, in the Russian economy, and some of that has been the result of of sanctions uh, from from the the West. So, yes, his position is is has politically it, it appears is strengthened, but but in reality, uh, probably if you take the longer view, um, Putin must be asking a lot of questions. But the, among the questions that the Europeans must be asking now is what pressure is available to them, not just the Europeans, but the Americans as well. The Europeans have more or less said that this peace deal gives them an opportunity to uh, to, to stop the cranking up of sanctions and perhaps to lift some of them. Um, they, the really the only sanctions that they, the the only mechanism they have at their disposal in 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 reality, because they're not prepared to pump weapons in to support the the Ukrainians, is is the question of of economic sanctions and ratcheting up the level of of economic sanctions. And the Minsk II agreement has postponed the next phase of ranking up of of. Uh, Sanctions. One of the things that, for example, is being talked about, and Russians regard it with enormous concern, is the the removal of the Russians from the Swift uh, the Swift international settlement system and the banking system, and that would hurt them very badly. And in, they've they've various ministers have spoken about how there would be dire consequences diplomatically, the expulsion of the American ambassador from Moscow, if that happened. So there there are other mechanisms. Um, the other thing I think that we should be, bear in mind is that uh, that while this has been going on in Ukraine, Russia has been flexing its muscles around the rest of Europe. And it, it has to be seen 
what's happening uh, there has and and Europe's perception of of what the Russians are at is very much coloured by some of the stuff that's going on on elsewhere. Putin's in in Hungary today talking to his friend Viktor Orban, uh, a member of the EU who has supported him quite unequivocally. There's been talk in Greece about turning to Russia to to get the debt settled settled. Uh, there's been talk in Cyprus of new uh, access by the Russians to air bases and and naval bases. Uh, in Serbia, the the Russians have a, have a very warm relationship. Um, and only on, on the 20th of January, uh, Russia signed a new military agreement with, with Iran. So you see, and you know, the other thing I should mention is, of course, the, the, the overflights and the um, uh, testing of the, the, the borders of some of the old Russian, old Soviet states uh, like uh, Latvia, Lithuania uh, and Estonia, which has caused some considerable alarm in, in their, their capitals. Dan McLaughlin, uh, if we look at the relative military strengths of the two sides in this conflict right now, is it a reasonable expectation that the Ukrainian government forces will have to uh, get out of Debaltseva and also perhaps uh, cede Mariupol? Certainly, uh, the Debaltseva picture looks very bleak for them now. Um, it's extremely hard for them in that area to reinforce the troops that are already there. As we say, they seem to be surrounded, and if, if troops have been captured, and there are already claims from the rebels that large numbers of, uh, of Ukrainian troops in Debaltseva have been captured and are surrendering, then um, obviously that's another trump card for the rebels to play in their negotiations uh, coming up with the, uh, with the, with the Ukrainian side. Um, so getting into that area will be extremely difficult for the Ukrainians. And when we look at the map, we can see that if if Debaltseva does fall to the rebels, they effectively have a, a an open road all the way back to the Russian border. Um, as uh, as Paddy mentioned there, the Russian border will remain open for the foreseeable future um, under the Minsk Accords. And we've seen huge amounts of... Uh, of military equipment coming over that border, talking to soldiers, some soldiers who've made it out, uh, uh, wounded soldiers who've been evacuated in days from the Baltimore. They've been saying that the uh, the rebel forces have absolutely enormous amounts of ammunition at their disposal. They seem to be firing artillery almost constantly um, at a rate and with an intensity that the Ukrainian forces simply can't match. So um, we really don't know because Russia continues to deny it's it's by now very obvious military involvement in eastern Ukraine. We haven't. We really have no idea how much uh, military hardware the rebels have at their disposal, but it's it's clearly a, a huge amount. What we should say about Mariupol is that if the uh, the rebels, with Russian military support, of course, did bring all their power to bear on Mariupol, it's very unlikely that the Ukrainian forces could hold out. But if uh, the rebels did push against that town, that key strategic port on the, the Sea of Azov in, in southeastern Ukraine, it would be a major, major escalation, and it would expose Russia to uh, another round of, of potentially very punishing sanctions from the West. It would also bring to the forefront of, of, uh, of international discussion again the prospect of, of supplying uh, high-tech defensive weapons, very least, to Ukrainians, to Ukrainian forces, something that the White House is considering but hasn't made a final decision on yet. In view of all the things you've been describing in the last few minutes, how are these Minsk Accords and the latest deal, how are they being perceived in uh, government-held Ukraine? 
they're being perceived, I mean, the, the whole process leading up to the, the signing of the accords and then the signing and then analysis of them afterwards, uh, that whole process has been treated with, with huge skepticism from, from the Ukrainian side, from most Ukrainians. Um, they simply don't believe that, 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 that Russia will allow Ukraine to be a stable and uh, over time more prosperous and, uh, and pro-Western, crucially, country. They think that Russia is intent on destroying the pro-Western uh, post-Maidan revolution uh, administration here, preventing Ukraine moving to the West, particularly moving closer to the EU, but above all towards NATO. So they don't think that, uh, they, they really don't believe anything that, 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 that Russia signs or, or that the rebels sign. They don't really think it's, it's worth the paper it's written on. What this translates into, really, for President Poroshenko and the administration in Kiev is huge, uh, not only huge skepticism, but increasingly when, when people see what's happening around it, uh, huge anger uh, growing all the time in Ukrainian society about the way that the, um, the military campaign is being handled and also how their politicians are leading the country. They feel like they're being duped. They feel like uh, the incompetence and, and the corruption that Maidan was supposed to do away with uh, it is still there and is still undermining the country and, and is losing territory for Kiev all the time. This feeling is particularly sharp and particularly painful for people this week. I mean, we're coming up at the end of this week to the first anniversary of the um, the most deadly day on Maidan last year when around about 100 protesters were killed, shot dead on, on Independence Square in Kiev. And, of course, uh, former President Yanukovych, President Yanukovych as he was at the time, fleeing Ukraine with his uh, with his entourage uh, the following evening. So uh, it's an extremely sensitive time, an extremely emotional time, which also means that, that, that with this huge pressure in society, there is there is great uh, danger for the the, the the president and the government of a, a political and a social backlash, which could even see translate into major protests on the streets and uh, from some of the volunteer battalions fighting in the east. Uh, a refusal to um, to obey a ceasefire and adhere to the terms of the ceasefire that, according to them, is already in tatters. Daniel McLaughlin in eastern Ukraine. Thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The murder of a volunteer security guard outside the main synagogue in Copenhagen at the weekend was the second fatal terrorist attack on European Jews this year, following the murder of four hostages at a kosher supermarket in Paris in January. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded to the latest attack with a call for mass immigration of European Jews to Israel. The call has been rejected by some Jewish leaders in Europe and has been controversial in Israel too. But as the leaders of Denmark, France and Germany pledged to protect their Jewish communities from further attack, how meaningful are those promises? And how hostile has the atmosphere become for Jews in Europe where non-lethal anti-Semitic incidents have also been on the rise? To discuss this, I'm joined from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Mark, what exactly was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu talking about when he called for mass immigration of European Jews to Israel? Well, remember, in one sense, he wasn't just pulling a rabbit from a hat, if you like. Um, Aliyah, as it's called in Hebrew, uh, or ascension, or going up, uh, is a, a central tenet of, Jeru- of um, Zionism, and always has been from the very beginning. The concept that the Jews, wherever they are, in whatever diaspora community, will uh, leave that country 
and, and come to uh, move to Israel on a permanent basis. Um, the desire of Jews to return to the land of their forefathers, the ingathering of the exiles, all very important elements, uh, if not the most important element of Zionism. And uh, that is, is and remains Israel's uh, raison d'etre, if you like. Um, Netanyahu, when he made the call this week, um, it was rather controversial because he said at the same time that uh, Jews are being attacked on mainland Europe again, and this wave uh, of attack, it will probably continue. And he called on all Jews uh, in all European countries to move, uh, to come home uh, from the Zionist perspective and move to Israel. Uh, there, there was some criticism, as you know, Mark, uh, from Jewish leaders in Europe, uh, some of whom said, well, the fact is that, uh, you know, we belong here in Europe. This is, uh, this is where we live. This is where we were born. And these are the communities to which we belong. And others then also said that, uh, that, that people should move to uh, Israel uh, for positive reasons rather than out of fear. Is that criticism, do you think, valid, despite what you were saying about the context uh, in which uh, the Prime Minister was speaking? I think so, uh, to some extent. It's an ongoing uh, dilemma, if you like. Uh, Israel, as I said, from the Zionist perspective, the raison d'etre of this country is to provide a a homeland uh, for Jews worldwide. However, when Jews are, are persecuted... Uh, in a particular country, it's obviously very controversial if Israeli leaders specifically talk uh, to the Jews of that country, uh, urging them to leave where they are and come to Israel. It it could be interpreted um, by some as saying that uh, Israel or Jewish leaders uh, believe that that country is incapable of uh, providing protection to Israel. the Jewish community of that country, uh, and therefore uh, the reason they would move to Israel would be because um, they cannot live safely in the country they are in. Um, most Jews have moved to Israel, I think it's fair to say, uh, in times of crisis, uh, whether that be um, from Jews from Arab countries who moved here en masse, some 700,000 in a couple of years after the State of Israel was founded, when it became extremely uncomfortable and dangerous for uh, Jews to remain in Arab lands, uh, or whether it's from the former Soviet Union, when the, Soviet, when the Iron Curtain collapsed, um, almost one million Jews left uh, the, the countries of the former Soviet Union and came to Israel. So traditionally, uh, the mass movements of Jewish diaspora communities to Israel have been from communities in some kind of distress, whether that be Jews facing physical danger or, uh, or physical attacks or just very, uh, when it becomes one way or the other difficult for Jews to live in a certain country. And uh, as I mentioned, Mark, this, uh, these incidents in, uh, in Paris and in, uh, and in Copenhagen are just the most lethal of uh, a succession of uh, anti-Semitic incidents that have been happening in Europe in recent years. How uh, serious is the threat to European Jews as perceived, say, from where you are in Israel? Um, I think it very much depends which country we're talking about and which period. But generally, um, I think um, 
We've always, of course, had anti-Semitism, traditional form of anti-Semitism, particularly from the right, uh, from the fascist or neo-fascist parties uh, or movements uh, in certain European countries at uh, given periods, of course. This has been combined uh, in recent years, obviously, with the rise of radical uh, Islamic elements. Uh, it wasn't a coincidence uh, that Jews were targeted uh, in both Paris and Copenhagen by these radical uh, uh, Islamic uh, elements. Uh, it's fair to say, I think, that uh, for many Jews in many European cities, uh, things have deteriorated uh, quite rapidly over the last few years. There are, un, there are um, just, just yesterday, in fact, uh, um, a video clip was posted of uh, called 10 Hours in Paris when a, a, a Jewish man, an Israeli reporter, as it was, as it happens, uh, deliberately uh, walked through uh, areas of Paris uh, um, with a kippah on his head, a Jewish skullcap, obviously uh, clearly identifying himself as a Jew. Uh, he was insulted in some places, spat on, uh, uh, the victim of anti-Semitic remarks, and was warned in some areas that it was quite simply uh, unsafe for a Jew to walk uh, in certain neighborhoods in Paris. This is also uh, the case in other European cities. Um, many Jewish people no longer feel comfortable walking in certain areas of European cities, uh, identified clearly uh, as Jewish. Uh, and, and many people in Israel would say that uh, if this is the case, then yes, Jews uh, are always welcome here from any country where they feel uncomfortable. And this is Israel's uh, answer, if you like, to uh, anti-Semitism, that Israel will always be a welcoming home for any Jew. Uh, Paddy Smith, uh, the uh, leaders of France and Germany, François Hollande and uh, Angela Merkel, uh, in the wake of the Copenhagen murders, they uh, insisted that uh, Jews were part of the communities here in Europe and they promised to protect them. But aren't those promises a bit hollow when you look not just at those incidents and those murders that we've seen in recent weeks, but also the um, the kind of attitudes and the kind of harassment that Mark has been describing just now. Yeah, I, I mean, I first wanted to say that that I, th I think what we have to understand is that this is this is a real sense in in Jewish communities that that Mark was talking about of of, of fear. I, I've spoken to friends in in London and and in Paris, just to give two examples of um, their nervousness about being being in the street openly identified as uh, uh, as Jews, and that that has been a qualitative change in the, in the situation in the course of the last probably a couple of years and it's you know uh, something that we have to take account of and we have to uh, sim sympathize with i think there is an important difference between the the rise of anti-semitism in europe in in the pre-war period and and now because now the the governments of European countries are very genuinely supportive of of the Jewish community and will take measures to to protect them and will will provide uh, uh, will will uh, if you like go on television and, and speak out against uh, uh, anti-Semitism and the the attacks are coming from very specific uh, 
sections of the either the far right or the the anti uh, uh, the, the the Islamic uh, jihadists. Well, curiously, it has to be said that um, in Copenhagen you have a slightly different uh, situation. It does appear as if the young man who was involved in the attack was not actually uh, a jihadist, but somebody who was associated with criminality, was was deeply disillusioned with Danish society, was was uh, on the fringes of, of society. And in some ways it wasn't an anti-Semitic attack, but a copycat attack. Now, you... You may say that's that's semantics, but I think it is it is important to put a scale on on the on the problem. But isn't there another context to this, Paddy, which is that uh, while the perpetrators tend to be either from the traditional European far right or from these Islamist movements or the occasional sort of uh, lone wolf like the one you're describing just now, that there's uh, that the context in which it's happening is that there is a certain lack of solidarity, partly connected with European hostility, where public opinion is concerned, towards the policies of Israel. Is that not an element of the alienation that some Jews might feel in Europe? Well, I think that's certainly part part of of their their sense. But you have a problem there because part of the... the, uh, uh, the Israeli lobby in in Western uh, countries has has sort of made it uh, a point of principle that any criticism of Israel uh, is automatically seen as as criticism uh, as as anti-Semitic and and they've tried to to label criticism of, of of Israel in that way. So it's quite difficult to live up to the sort of standards that they are are expecting. Um, and I think in, in some ways, too, there is a, the, part of the problem arising from Netanyahu's contribution is that he is again en, um, saying Israel and the Jews are one. And uh, in inviting Jews to come to Israel, he is actually confirming, if you like, the, the stereotype uh, that the, the jihadists are trying to, to portray or the anti-Semitic anti forces are trying to portray. Uh, Mark Weiss, can I ask you about that, this blurring of distinctions in these various uh, concepts and categories of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, or indeed Israel and the Jews? It's um, clear that um, there are legitimate anti-Israel uh, sentiments in Europe uh, that are no, in no way connected with anti-Semitism or hostility to Jewish people as a whole. However, it's no coincidence that uh, anti-Semitic, purely anti-Semitic incidents, whether that be verbal abuse or physical attacks on Jewish communities, tend to peak um, when uh, Israel is at war, whether it be uh, uh, in the Gaza Strip or in South Lebanon, or when there's a Palestinian uprising, uh, uh, and uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, Israel uses uh, a certain degree of force to to quell uh, Palestinian uh, protests. All this always um, has a mirror image of Europe of not only legitimate uh, anti-Israel debate and uh, sentiment, but also attacks, uh, anti-Semitic attacks uh, against Jews for being Jews. Um, Many in Israel would argue that the two, uh, that there is no difference between the two, um, and that um, if you scratch.
scratch the surface of an anti uh, of an anti-Israel protest, uh, you 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 will find uh, anti-Semitic many anti-Semitic sentiments uh, beneath the surface. Uh, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's what many people in Israel and many people in Israeli leadership believe. Um, so um, as uh, opinion in the West becomes more and more hostile to Israel, I think it's fair to say it becomes more uncomfortable uh, for Jews uh, uh, in their daily lives uh, in many European countries. Uh, recently, uh, in the last few weeks, there were statistics from uh, Britain which saw a peak in anti-Semitic, uh, an unprecedented peak in anti-Semitic incidents coinciding with last summer's uh, Israel opera- military operation in the Gaza Strip. I, can I ask you finally, uh, Mark, just the political context of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's remarks? I mean, obviously, you've got a very hotly contested uh, general election going on there, and everything is viewed through a political prism. Was this uh, a political intervention, do you think? Um, I don't think so, in the sense that an Israeli prime minister calling for uh, more aliyah, more Jewish uh, immigration to Israel, I don't think that's likely to be uh, immediately a, a, a major vote winner. Uh, it, it's, it's an ongoing, as I said, it's an ongoing element of all Israeli uh, uh, government policy since the foundation of the state. As I said, uh, the very essence of Zionism, if you like, uh, it's not necessarily uh, a sentiment that will uh, be translated into uh, a, a massive swing in votes, say, amongst undecided voters. Um, but um, there are some communities uh, amongst the electorate in Israel, particularly, say, uh, amongst uh, the French Jewish community, who uh, tens of thousands uh, have moved to Israel the last few years, and hundreds of thousands we hear in France are considering moving to Israel. Amongst those kind of communities, it could be a vote winner. But I think, those, I think in that sense, the people who may be uh, um, swayed would be more interested in concrete um, moves from the Israeli government to encourage uh, French Jews to move here Israel, as opposed to uh, these broad statements by the Prime Minister. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem and Paddy Smith here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.